Can you turn with me please to Revelation chapter 13? Revelation chapter 13. It's on page 1244. Uh, if you've got the little church Bibles, what color is this one? The yellow one. If it's the green one, it's page 1035. Thank you. Page 1035. And um, one of the handouts you got as you came in has got an outline in the middle. Uh, and so if you have that outline open, you can see uh, where we're going as well. Well, we know that Christians around the world have been and are being persecuted by governments. There are times where governments want to control everything, including religion, and so you get persecution. There are times when governments see Christians as enemies of the state because their loyalty to Jesus is greater than their loyalty to the nation, and so you get persecution. There are times when governments seek to get rid of Christianity or prevent its growth because they want to impose a uniform system of belief on their people. In some places it's atheism, in some places it's Islam, in some places it's Hinduism or some other religion. Not all governments are like that, but in history and around the world, you look, you will find governments like this. And the Bible tells us that the spiritual reality behind all this is Satan himself. Last week he was pictured as a dragon, furious because he cannot destroy the people of God and, and thwart God's plans and purposes. And in his fury, he makes war on Christians. He can't touch them spiritually. They are protected through the time of their persecution, but he can attack them here on earth. And he does so through two of his agents whom we see today. And these agents are pictured here as two beasts. The first beast reminds us of those beasts that we read about in our Old Testament reading in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, you remember there are four beasts, and they represent successive kingdoms, major world powers. But, but here in Revelation, the beast seems to be a mix of them, although it is possible to fit all into the description of the fourth. In chapter 13, verse 1, the beast comes from the sea, just like the beast of Daniel, at least in the first part. It has torn horns, like the fourth beast of Daniel. Although the fact that it not only has ten horns, but also seven heads, also makes it look like the dragon that we met last week, because it is made in the dragon's image. The fourth beast in Daniel 7 talks words against the Most High. And here the beast has blasphemous names on his heads. In verse 2, the beast is a composite of a leopard, a beer, uh, a bear, a beer. <laughs> now you think I've got that on my mind, don't you? A composite of a leopard, a bear, a lion. And the first beast in Daniel looked in some way like a lion, 
first beast, and the second beast like a leopard, and the third beast like a bear. And since we have Daniel's beast representing various kings and kingdoms in contrast to the kingdom of God, we might begin with a hypothesis that this beast in Revelation is either a composite picture of all kings and kingdoms in contrast to the kingdom of God, or the ultimate king and kingdom in hostility to God, or or both. Either way, the beast represents political power. Kings, kingdoms, governments, states, in opposition to the lordship of Christ. In the second half of verse 2, we begin to see what the beast does. We see that it... It counterfeits Christ the King. Well, you see, first of all, the dragon gave his power and authority and his throne. He gave his power and his throne and great authority to this beast. And it contrasts, doesn't it, with Daniel 7, where the Ancient of Days, God the Father, gives dominion and the glory and the kingdom to the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus. Jesus rules for the Father, and the beast rules for Satan. Furthermore, we see in verse 3 that one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Again, contrast what happened to Jesus. Jesus died and rose again. And people from all over the world follow him. He is the lamb who was slain and yet is worshipped by earth and heaven. But the beast here mimics the Lord Jesus and his wonderful salvation in its own evil way. And so in verse 4, people from all over the world worship the beast and say, who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? The contrast is those between those who worship the beast and therefore the dragon and those who worship Jesus, and therefore the Father. You see, over and over again, this beast is a, is a counterfeit to Christ. Jesus is the true king over all the earth. The beast is an evil imitation of Jesus. It is like the true king, but, but actually it's not. It doesn't rule for the Father. It rules for the devil. It is the counterfeit of Christ. It is the anti-Christ. The next thing we see about this beast is that it persecutes God's people. It is in another sense anti-Christ because it's anti-Christ people. Uh, in verse 5, the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It speaks against God and seems to get away with it. Uh, in verse 5, it's allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years. Same length of time we saw last week that God's people were protected in the desert. Uh, three and a half years or 42 months is, is a symbolic number. Right? If today we say 9-11, or we say May 13th, it doesn't, it's not literally talking about that, is it? Something's going to happen on May 13th. No, no, no. It's, it stands for something. They mean something. And it's the same here. Three and a half years was the time that God's people were persecuted very severely in the time between the Testaments. And so became symbolic for a prolonged but limited time of suffering under persecution. 
may refer to the whole time between Jesus' first and second coming, or it may refer to season or seasons of particularly intense persecution in that time. But either way, throughout that time, the beast opens its mouth, verse 6, to utter haughty and blasphemous words. But not only does it speak bad about God and His people, it is actually given permission to do bad things to them. In verse 7, it's allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. God's people are persecuted, captured, killed by, by this beast. But even then, only because it is allowed. Back in Daniel 7, the Son of Man has given authority over everyone. And yet here, at another level, the, the authority seems to be given to the beast. Because if verse 7 continues... Authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And so the beast is worshipped all over the world instead of Jesus, verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. The only people who do not worship the beast are the people whom God has chosen to belong to Jesus. The ones whom God elected before the foundation of the world to so belong to the Lord Jesus and who died for them that they will refuse to worship this beast. Otherwise, it seems to be universal. Just imagine the enormous pressure on God's people. This is not just peer pressure or pressure from family or, or social pressure. Christians go to jail for this. Believers die for this. And the Spirit says in verse 9, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is taken into captivity, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. God is sovereign even in persecution. It looks like the beast is in control. It feels like the beast is in control. It sounds like the beast is in control. But in the end, God is in control. And those whom God has chosen will not worship the beast. But whether or the alternative is captivity or martyrdom, he calls his people to keep trusting him and endure to the very end. Well, there's that first picture that is painted for us. That's a pretty scary picture, isn't it? But that's not the only picture. Then now there's, there's another picture, a second picture, a second beast. Um, and this beast, in verse 11 onwards, is a little bit different. It comes from the earth. It has two horns like a lamb. But when it speaks, it speaks like a dragon. It pretends to be a bit Jesus-like, but its words are actually Satan's. And just as the first beast derives its authority from the dragon, the second beast derives its authority from the first beast. And verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast 
in its presence. But what does it do? Well, you know how the Holy Spirit points people to Christ, causes us to believe in Him, and to love Him, and to serve Him? Well, the second beast, verse 12, makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. And so the second beast functions a little bit like a, a counterfeit Holy Spirit, isn't it? And it's very impressive. In verse 13, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. In the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah did that. And so the second beast is like a prophet of God. But it's not of God. Later on in the book of Revelation, it's called the false prophet. And this false prophet, the second beast, works signs, verse 14, in the presence of the beast, and by them deceives those who dwell on earth. For it tells them to make an image of the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. What it does, it deceives people, it tells people, it gets people all over the world to idolize the first beast, to, to make an idol of that first beast. So what does this mean? Well, if this first beast has political power, then the second beast seems to have religious or ideological power. This, this second beast gets people to make an idol out of that political kingdom, that first beast. It tricks people into making an idol of the state or the ruler or the earthly kingdom and to worship that instead of worshipping Jesus. And this trickery is so convincing that the, that the idol seems to have a life of its own. This is all picture language, don't you? I'm not saying every time he makes an idol of it. This is picture. The idol's got a picture of it, a life of its own. Look at, look at verse 15. And it's allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And so this idol of the first beast, this image of the state or the ruler or the earthly kingdom is, is empowered by the second beast, that false prophet, that false religion, that false ideology. And this image is so powerful, this idol is so powerful that it's powerful enough to, to persecute and kill all who will not worship it. And that same idol creates economic hardship and destruction and destitution for those who won't embrace it. Here's the picture in verse 16 and 17. And it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slaves, to be marked on the right hand of forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has that mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, what does it mean to receive the mark of the beast? Before we answer that, Let's just know that everything that we've read so far is in picture language, isn't it? Right. When it comes to the mark, then, well, we should expect it to be the same. Earlier on in the book of Revelation, God's servants were given his seal on their foreheads. Chapter 7, verse 2, if you're taking notes. And the background of that is Ezekiel 9.4. In Ezekiel's vision where God marks those who are his before he brings judgment on Jerusalem. In a few minutes, in chapter 14, verse 1, we will see that those who belong to Jesus with God's name on their forehead are with Him in glory. What does God's seal mean? God's seal means ownership. means God's people belong to Him. God knows they are His. It's not a literal mark, is it? It's a, it's a spiritual one. 
Christians don't go around with God's name literally written on our forehead. So, so why would the mark of the beast be a literal one either? The mark of the beast means they belong, not to Christ, but to the beast. It means they serve the beast, they worship the beast, they are loyal to the beast, and the beast knows that they are his. They have the mark. Sometimes people worry about getting the mark by accident when you apply for a credit card or you get an iPhone or something like that. Don't worry about that. You just be loyal to Christ. Don't worship or serve anything or anyone apart from Him. And never let the government or state or political system have a higher place in your loyalty than Jesus, no matter what country you come from. So what have we seen so far? The first beast represents political power or kingdom in opposition to Christ, and it persecutes God's people. The second beast represents false religion and ideology in opposition to Christ, and so idolizes the state of the political kingdom that leads to the persecution of God's people. Now, where do we see these beasts manifested in history? I think we see that first beast wherever we have a government or state which calls for commitment to itself above our commitment to Christ. And we see the second beast whenever false religion or false ideology is used by political power to legitimize or support this idolatry. But let's think about the application to the churches that John was first writing to. In that day, the political power was the Roman Empire. And some of the Roman emperors, indeed, demanded to be worshipped as gods. They were beastly figures like that first beast. The cultic religion of emperor worship, at that time the letter was written, is led by the high priest of Asia who is responsible for getting the people in Asia where the book was written to, to to worship the emperor. He's a false prophet-like figure. We don't have too many details from history about what he's doing at that stage, but well, may well be some of the things that we do see later are happening here. It could well be that soon, unless people sacrificed to the emperor, they wouldn't get a license to trade. Emperor worship was already flourishing in many of those seven cities that are mentioned in chapters 1 to 3 of this book. And the center of it was at Pergamum, where in chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus says Satan has his throne. And around that time, one of the Roman emperors also built an eight-meter-high statue of himself in Ephesus, another one of those cities, and suggested he be called Lord and God. Later on, emperor worship, or the worship of Roman gods, would become a test of loyalty to the state. If you didn't sacrifice to the state gods, then you were disloyal to the emperor, and that was treason. We have a letter dated 112 AD from another emperor to one of his officials who had asked him what to do about the Christians. And he says, well, don't seek them out. Don't go and gotcha out and look for them. But if someone is accused of being a Christian, then, well, you just get them to clear their name by sacrificing to one of the Roman gods. And if they do that, then that's fine. Let them go. But it's capital punishment if they don't. But even later, it's worse. 
In about 250 AD, there was another edict from another emperor that everyone must offer a sacrifice, pour a libation, that's a drink offering, and eat some food sacrificed to the gods of Rome. And this is a test of loyalty to the empire. They would get a certificate called a libellus if they did, but those without the certificate would be imprisoned and some would be executed. All these things are, are manifestations, isn't it, of that first beast and the second beast in the Roman Empire. Now, which brings me back to verse 18, which I know you're all waiting for. Because what you really want to know is about the number 666. Is that right? <laughs> well, I think verse 18 is there to help John identify the manifestation, John's readers rather, to, to identify the manifestation of the beasts in their time. Look at it carefully with me. It starts off by saying, this calls for wisdom. Now, the only other time where wisdom is called for in the book of Revelation in this kind of way is in chapter 17, verse 9. And there, it's where the angel says that the seven heads, uh, sorry, seven heads that, that John sees in the visions are seven mountains on which the woman in the vision that he sees, don't worry about the details, we'll get there, is standing. And for those in the know, Rome is built on seven hills. And so, he's got his picture language there, but then he's suddenly interpreting that picture language in a semi-literal way to show his application of the Roman Empire without actually saying so. It's speaking about Rome, but for security reasons in a veiled way. That's what happens in the other one. Now, if that's the case in 17 verse 9, then it seems to me likely that there's a similar thing happening here. So I'm looking for an application to something or someone in the Roman Empire at the time. Something or someone that God is warning his people against. And probably would be pretty obvious to the people then when they're reading it, just like it's obvious to us because we know about Rome being built on seven hills. But we don't know for sure what it is. It's very controversial, but I'll tell you, tell you what I think, okay? Tell you what I think, and you decide for yourself whether you find it convincing or... You, there's some other thing that you, that you think is right. Verse 18 tells us very clearly that it's man's number or a man's number. In ancient times, people often had numbers that were calculated from their names. Right? Each letter of the alphabet represents a number, so your name is the sum of your numbers. If you take the name Jesus and you add the numbers, you know what number you get? 888. Right? The Chinese will love this one. Right? 888. Now, we are looking for 666. Or are we? Look at the text again. Let the one, let the one who is understanding calculate the number of the beast. Ah, now look at it carefully. We are told to calculate the number of the beast. We are not told to work out who is the beast from the number. See the difference? We are told to work out the beast and then calculate the number. Usually we do it the other way around. That's why people get so wrong. Lah. Start with 666 and say, okay, where do I kind of find 666? And then try and find who is the Antichrist. So, R-O-N-A-L-D, Ronald. W-I-L-S-O-N, Wilson. R-E-A-G-E-N, Regan. 666, ah, 
must be the Antichrist. Right? Or some people have claimed that the Pope has a, has a crown with a title, Vicarious Philae Dei, Vicar or Representative of the Son of God, and in Latin that adds up to 666. Or is he the beast? Let me tell you, when Don Carson came for Clang Valley Bible Conference, quite a few years ago now, uh, he was speaking on Revelation, and uh, the MC on the night, which wasn't me, pointed out there were six letters in Donald, six letters in Arthur, and six letters in Carson. Six, six, six. Uh, but the funniest one if, is if you start with Barney the dinosaur. Right? If you take the words cute purple dinosaur and you add up the letters that have numeric value in Latin, you will get 666. <laughs> but the thing is, we are told to work out the beast. We are not told to work out the beast from the number. We are told to work out the number from the beast. So you've got to identify the beast first. So who is the beast? Well, the beast we're talking about here is the first beast, isn't it? And the first beast we've seen is powerful, blasphemous, conquering king. One who has authority over the earth, but uses it to persecute the kingdom of God. The most likely thing in John's day, it must be the Roman Empire or the Roman Emperor. Well, John tells us it's the number of a man. So we think it's probably the Roman Emperor. The worst anti-Christian persecuting Roman emperor around that time would have been Emperor Nero or Nero Caesar. Now, you start from that direction, now you look and see, does Nero Caesar add up to 666? And you take Nero Caesar in Hebrew and it adds up to 666. They start with that direction and work forward. For the people of John's day, and the next couple of centuries, that beast would have been the Antichrist Emperor. And so to take the mark of the Emperor, to take the mark is to, is to let the Emperor take the place of Christ in their lives, to worship Him. But the beastly influence is not just seen in the Roman Empire, it's seen throughout history, wherever you get that first and second beast working together. And those beasts are always around, aren't they? We see it in Hitler's Germany, where Hitler demands the kind of loyalty that only belongs to Jesus and various official churches support him. We see it in North Korea, where the state persecutes God's people and his leader is deified in communist ideology. It's the false prophet that holds it up. We see in the Middle East where ISIS seeks to build a state that denies Christ and persecutes his people and, and uses false religion to build that loyalty. We see in Somalia where laws forbidding blasphemy or false religion are used to persecute and prosecute Christians and apostasy means that those who turn to Christ from a false prophet face the penalty of death. Go and ask Sadaf about Pakistan afterwards. Ask about Iran. We may be seeing the rise of the beast in the contemporary West as well, as the state, supported by anti Christian, secular, liberal ideology, begins to demand that Christians disobey Christ or be subject to anti discrimination and other putative measures. And it may well be that before the coming of Christ, we see it manifested even more strongly and universally than we see it today. 
So be on the lookout. Never let loyalty to government, king or country take a higher place than your loyalty to Christ, the true king. Beware the first beast. And wherever you see false religion and ideology supporting that loyalty, beware the second beast. Beware and be careful not to obey. But don't worry too much. Don't obsess over it. Sometimes Christians spend a lot of time preoccupied about the beast and trying to stop anything they might think might help them. You know, face recognition technology or in some countries or ID cards or things that associate people with numbers. Let me say, you and I can't actually stop the beasts. We're not told to slay them. God will actually do that. That's later. What are we told to do? We are told to trust God and endure. For even when the beasts are at the very height of their blasphemy and persecution of God's people, God is still in control. And that's a great encouragement to us here in Malaysia, isn't it? We Malaysian Christians often worry about future persecution in our country. We see things happening in our society. We're quite, quite, we get quite concerned about the, the future of the, of the church here. And let me reassure you, no need to worry. If it's captivity, God has ordained for you. What does the Bible say? you will go to jail. If it's martyrdom that's ordained for me, then I'll be killed. No big deal. Millions of Christians all over the world have been killed by the beast. Why do you think it's so horrific if it's you or me? It's just normal. The message of Revelation 13 is that this is what, it, this is what happens. Satan has his beasts. They attack God's people, but trust God and endure. But God in His mercy has not left it there. He gives us the encouragement that we need to trust Him and endure by, by painting for us another picture, a third one. And whenever you look at those two beasts and you get worried, make sure you look at the third picture as well. Because in that third picture, He shows us Christ. He shows us not the picture of a beast and its people, but of the Lamb and His people. Chapter 14, verse 1. And then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood a lamb, stood the lamb, actually, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. You remember back in Psalm 2? In Psalm 2, the nations rage and plot against God and his anointed king, but they can't really fight against them. God says, I have set my... Excuse me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And it's only a matter of time because before he comes to crush and those, who, those who oppose him and his people. And here we see Mount Zion with the eye of faith. This is God's heavenly place. This is God's heavenly church. And there is the king, the lamb, the true king, the Lord Jesus. And with him are the 144,000. We've already seen that this number, like all the numbers in Revelation, is symbolic. If 12 is the people of God, 12 times 12 times 1,000 is complete people of God. We saw it earlier in the, in the book of Revelation. Number 144,000, and when John looks, it's a multitude that no one can number. 
These are God's people from down through the ages, living and departed. These are all those who have the name of Jesus and his Father on their forehead. These are those who belong to him. On the earth, God's people are still being persecuted and mistreated. They are being impoverished, taken into captivity. They are being killed, but, but their real life is safe. Because their real life is hidden with Christ in God. Spiritually, they are act- even though they are suffering persecution here, spiritually, actually, they are with Christ in the heavenly places. They have come to Mount Zion. They have gathered here around the Lamb. And actually, they are perfectly secure. There's a sound, however, that's coming from them. And that sound is deafening. It's one voice, but it's so loud because that volume is coming from the combined volume of all these people in this uncountable multitude. And John describes it in verse 2 as like the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. You heard loud thunder. Wow, so loud. And yet, it's melodic. It's like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. For it is the sound of singing. Very loud, but very beautiful singing. Singing in church is always good, isn't it? When you have a huge crowd singing loudly together, oh, it's even better. As long as the words are actually gospel-centered and meaningful. And these words are, Verse 3, they're singing a new song before the throne and before the living creatures and before the elders. A new song in the Old Testament is a song of, of thankfulness to God for His salvation. When He redeems His people and defeats His enemies and, and God's people are singing this song. They are singing it because they have been redeemed. The end of verse 3 says that no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. You see, the beast and the false prophet, they can't learn this song. They haven't been redeemed. Those who belong to the beast can't learn this song. They haven't been redeemed. Even the four living creatures and the elders who worship God forever, they don't learn this song because they don't need to be redeemed. But you and I are people who needed saving and we were saved by the Lamb. And this is our song. God's people sing to the Lamb because He died to redeem them. And these redeemed singers, they keep themselves pure. Not to say they were pure beforehand. No, no, no. They were redeemed from the earth. But now they're redeemed. They live for Jesus. In verse 4, they are are pictured as, as virgins. They are getting ready to be married to Christ. So they don't defile themselves by by having sex with someone else before. And that's that's a metaphor for engaging in idolatry. For they belong to Christ. And so worshipping other gods would be spiritual unfaithfulness. They're not going to do that. Jesus had told them to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Him. So they know they have to be prepared to die for His sake. And they are willing to be. And so in verse 4, they follow the Lamb wherever He goes, even to death. And at the end of verse 4, they are the first fruits for God and the Lamb. Because God is going to bring in a whole new creation. And these people who are in Christ, they are a new creation already. The Spirit has begun their work in their hearts. No lie is found in their mouth in verse 5. They are blameless. Words used elsewhere of Jesus Himself because these people are a holy people. 
They're saved by the Lamb. They walk in His ways. This is how God sees His church. This is how God sees His people. A heavenly people, redeemed by Christ, ready to follow Him to death, seeking to imitate Him in holy living. In the world, they are persecuted. But really, they are safe in Mount Zion, worshipping the Lamb who saved them. So, brothers and sisters, what is the Spirit saying to us in this word today? Well, we have seen that following Christ in this world can be costly. Behind the persecution of God's people stands Satan and his beasts. But hold fast. You are one of God's people. You are redeemed by Jesus. You are marked as His. Your name is written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. You praise Jesus in one voice with His people. You imitate Jesus in holy living. Although you are persecuted in the world, your real home is in heaven, on Mount Zion, with Jesus. And so whatever happens now, whatever is happening in your home, country, whatever might happen here in the future, just remember this. It's okay to be taken captive. It's okay to be killed. Just don't engage in idolatry. Keep trusting Jesus. Keep following Jesus, even unto death. For your real home is at Mount Zion. That is where you dwell. The beast can't get you there. And there, you are perfectly secure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain for us. That he died for our sins in our place to redeem us, to make us his. Thank you that this lamb who was slain has been raised. You raised him from the dead, that he's a true king. And that you've chosen us to be his people. That our names have been written before the foundation of the world in his book of life. Thank you that we are spiritually with him in Mount Zion, in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority, all the powers of Satan and his beasts. But we know, Father, that at the same time we are still in the world and Satan is active in the world and that we are susceptible to his persecution through the beasts. So please help us, we pray to shun idolatry, to keep trusting you, to endure whatever persecution might come our way. Please keep us secure in your love and willing to follow Jesus whatever the cost. We ask this in his name. Amen.